This is Legal and Compliance Insights from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. This podcast is dedicated exclusively to providing you with illuminating analysis on legal and compliance issues faced by businesses around the globe. I'm Charles Hecker, and over the coming episodes, I'll be speaking to our experts about litigation readiness, a crucial aspect of any business strategy as disputes become more dynamic in the wake of COVID-19. Today, we're going to be taking a close look at one aspect of litigation readiness, and that is asset tracing, the investigative process of helping clients follow the money through identifying, locating, assessing the status and recoverability of counterparties' assets. I have two of our very own in-house experts with me today, Ramon Ghosh and Jessica Pyman. Ramon, welcome to the podcast. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your area of expertise. So I manage the business intelligence practice for Europe at the firm and help clients assess counterparty risk where they're involved in either transactions or disputes. I focus a lot of my time on litigation support matters and in particular asset tracing. My background is as a commercial litigation lawyer, having qualified and practiced in England, and I'm based in London. Jessica, welcome to you as well. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your areas of expertise. I run the Controlris Asia-Pacific Business Intelligence Practice, and my background is in China. Over the last 15 years, I've been advising clients on deal-related corruption and integrity deal risks and on litigation strategy and asset tracing across Asia. Give us a little bit of an overview here. What are we talking about? What are assets and what's the search? Assets are a quite a flexy term. You know, ideally we would have a set of bank account details and map of where all the money is, but oftentimes we have a different starting point just because to get to that takes several steps. And I say our starting point tends to be corporate structures. So what assets are held within companies, either kind of special purpose vehicles or actual operational entities. And then I would say kind of the second pillar and starting point is kind of bricks and mortar assets, so property. And how we look for those kind of will vary whether it's an asset trace or an asset ID on companies or on, for instance, high net worth individuals. And so then we'll be looking for a range of things. But still, I'd say probably the starting point from an investigative point of view tends to be corporate structure, so what assets are held in companies and hard assets, so property, facilities, manufacturing plants, etc. Either of you can jump in here first, but what I'd like to hear from both of you is one really memorable experience that you've had in an asset tracing case. I think my most memorable experience was my most terrifying, which is why it's still with me. I remember doing a day of interviews in Bangkok with potential witnesses and then having to ride pillion on the back of a motorcycle taxi down really crowded pavements with people jumping out of the way, clutching a briefcase because I was so nervous about not being able to get to the airport that night because I was equally scared of my husband's wrath at missing the flight and not being back to look after my children and the high likelihood of not surviving the motorcycle trip at all. Jessica, that sounds part Asset Trace and part James Bond film. Um, 
Thank you for that. Ramon, what is your most memorable experience in an asset trace? I acted on behalf of a creditors committee connected to bankruptcy proceedings in the US. And the remit was to check whether a defendant who was a non-resident Indian, whether his submission that he owned no assets was correct. So we did a first phase of investigation and research, identified a number of potential properties and corporate interests in India, which in turn led us to a very picturesque and rural part of Punjab, close to the northwest border of Pakistan. So we travelled up there and checked records in the area, undertook inquiries, site visits and located and verified that land ownership. But it was particularly memorable because I was delayed on the way back to the, the train station to go home in a, in a rickshaw. And I was due to be speaking with the client on a call. And as that call started, a wedding procession began, which if you witnessed a wedding in India, often <laughs> involves a lot of drumming, dancing, singing, and a groom on a horse. And it was pretty spectacular. And although I couldn't hear myself speaking on the call afterwards, the client seemed to really appreciate listening to that experience. So that's one that very much sticks in the mind. Tell us a little bit about the kinds of scenarios where clients encounter the requirement to undertake an asset tracing exercise. Usually I would say that there are two main scenarios which are during or after a dispute, with the first scenario being to help locate proceeds of illegal activities as part of fraud or corruption or other financial investigation. And then secondly, to assist with enforcing the judgment. But increasingly, I think we're seeing a range of stuff and clients are taking smart decisions early on to get litigation ready and they're engaging us to conduct what we would call fit to sue type assessments where we just take a lighter investigative look at the financial standing of a counterparty to judge whether there are sufficient assets and if there's still money left on the table. In terms of the fit to sue assessments, we undertaken a number of those at the outset of a dispute, often before proceedings are served, and done a number of matters with a view to, yes, firstly, understanding the financial status of the other side, and secondly, to track assets during the course of a dispute to ensure that there's no dissipation or fundamental change of ownership so that the adverse party is not trying to evade asset enforcement. I think that last point is quite relevant to ensure that clients avoid spending quite significant amounts of money to pursue a case, only to be left with a paper judgment because they can't enforce against it. And I guess just to add to that, we've assisted quite a few law firms over recent months to undertake those early stage asset reviews of a counterparty for onward submission to third party litigation funders as part of the application for financing of a case. And that is a huge growth area in the market for big ticket litigation. It's particularly relevant to the current economic climate as many firms don't necessarily have the cash reserves to be pursuing lengthy dispute processes, irrespective of how good the merits of the underlying case are. Because as we know, litigation can be expensive. And at this point in time, due to the pandemic, we're finding that most businesses are keen to avoid that discretionary spend. Jessica, how does the methodology for asset tracing differ from other intelligence gathering assignments. Business intelligence tends to be pre-deal and focused on aspects of due diligence and making sure there are no undisclosed risks associated with the deal. Asset tracing is a bit like the yin to due diligence is yang. It uses a lot of the same techniques, but applied 
differently and generally we work in a much more heightened contentious situation so in most instances if a client is owed money then the counterparty will have gone to lengths to make sure that the client can't get their hands on their money and that they obfuscate the trail of those assets so they use complex corporate holding structures to hold assets in jurisdictions where there's little or no disclosure about beneficial ownership they put their interest in the names of proxies or close associates and as Ramon mentioned you know they will often dissipate assets so they put them beyond arm's reach So in those circumstances, I think creditors really struggle to gain access to the basic information necessary because the assets are often held in offshore or other secrecy jurisdictions and they can't really even successfully enforce judgments. And to unravel those structures and work out who is behind them takes a lot of robust and creative research across a stack of different jurisdictions and requires a high degree of financial and legal literacy and importantly, a very investigative mindset. Researchers know when to pull on possible leads and spot anomalous information which may provide further clues. I would say also that the process, it, it tends to be much more iterative. Research is backed up with kind of a range of other techniques, such as field investigation and discrete information gathering from interviews. And there'll only be a very small number of people who'll know what decisions were made about where assets sit and how they're held. So our job is to try and find ways to unpick those decisions. It's about not taking that information at face value. I think being investigative and, as as you say, Jessica, being creative, continually just asking why and building out that full picture of an adverse party's circle of influence and associations is really important. So we want to look at business partners, it could be family members, proxies, related entities from a time where the adverse party might have been in acquisition mode rather than dissipation mode, and then tracking everything that's happened since that point. Following those leads really gives us the best chance of tracking and locating those tangible assets. So property premises, machinery, shares, corporate and fund ownership, and in some cases, private jets and yachts. There have been a number of cases where we thought we've reached a dead end only to find a small nugget of information which could be from manually retrieved corporate records or a social media post or an inquiry within a specific community that's really opened up a case again and revealed more interest sitting in different and sometimes enforcement-friendly jurisdictions. Ultimately, that's the type of evidence that we want to locate that can be admissible and help the client in proceedings. And there's often quite a long and convoluted way to get there. So I think tenacity has to go with that creativity and we'll often overwork those cases to find the right answers. These matters are heightened and they're contentious and they probably well describe the vocation of an investigator. What are some of the obstacles? What are some of the difficulties in effective asset tracing? And if you have a find, if you if you hit what you're looking for, what about the enforcement of these cases? How do you manage that end of the assignment? Often, and certainly historically, clients' expectations about what's possible requires a lot of management. There's no silver bullet, there's no kind of secret sauce or pot of gold that's easily discoverable. So as 
trusted advisors, we have to work very hard to make sure that we really understand what the client requires and what their particular motivation is for conducting the work. Is it business as usual? Is it a grudge match? How aggressive they are? And we need to make sure that we really effectively communicated our approach and what the difficulties are, which again covers a range of issues, but their circumstances are different. They might need to collect an unpaid debt. They may need to gather information kind of purely for leverage or negotiations. And those objectives can vary hugely. So the strategy that we adopt needs to match that. And some strategies require gathering hard evidence that's admissible in court and some require a more noodly approach where we're gathering circumstantial or indicative information which kind of supports a hypothesis. These exercises are typically labour intensive and they don't come with any guarantee of success and a case will often take a number of different twists and turns. So often the challenge can be the evolving nature of a dispute. So it might be information that's disclosed during the course of a dispute or fundamentally changes the focus of an asset search. So a classic one is where an adverse party goes missing in action before the service of proceedings. So then an asset search transitions into actually locating where a debtor or an adverse party might be to serve those proceedings. And we've had recent cases which have been unsurprisingly multi-jurisdictional, but led us from the UK to Asia, back to the Middle East, and really enabled us to utilize technology, social media mapping together with our research to identify where an individual or individuals might be located. And we've used our maritime practice as well to track the location and status of shipping vessels and yachts to time that service of proceedings right, which is very difficult, but incredibly satisfying when you pull it off. From a methodology perspective, there are those challenges and often parties in a dispute are chasing a significant debt, but often have limited funds to achieve that favorable outcome. So what we have to do is really provide advice on where to best focus our resources so they can get maximum value. So it might be doing a first phase of multilingual research, it could be financial record analysis, then moving on to jurisdiction specific inquiries or site visits. I think ultimately having investigators and officers globally enables us to do that relatively efficiently. Our ultimate objective really is to give our clients that information or evidence which can be used or information which is going to be useful in applying pressure to a counterparty to negotiate and settle. Our work cannot be standalone. It's of paramount importance that it complements and assists a legal strategy and so a strong working relationship and communication channels with counsel are absolutely vital for success. Ramon, you touched on the global nature of this work. Tell us a little bit about some of the global and regional trends that we're seeing in dispute support. Touching on the Europe practice, we've had a number of ongoing dispute support instructions from the London market throughout 2020. I think the first thing to mention is that disputes can really happen at any time, whether there's a bull or a bear market. So there could be specific issues within a country, for example, in high growth economies where financial institutions have provided extensive lines of credit leading to high levels of non-performing loans to industry-specific issues. So that could be where raw material prices have changed, margins have tightened, and that's led to repayment issues. We've had that ongoing tranche of work that's happened, but that said, over the last two months, three months since the pandemic really hit and lockdown occurred, we've definitely seen an increase in new instructions, and that's a trend which we expect to see continue. And I think that that's been driven by the 
restrictive operating environment across a number of different jurisdictions globally and certainly within Europe. I think we're probably seeing three different classes of companies at the moment. Firstly, those who are either thriving or in robust financial health or have enough cash reserves to survive. Secondly, those companies who can survive, but probably only for a limited period of time, depending on what happens in terms of the economy opening up. And thirdly, those who can't survive because they really don't have that underlying liquidity. So from classes two and three, we can expect a rise in disputes from contract frustration, defaults, insolvencies, and supply chain disruptions. So in terms of where we are in the economic cycle, we know that we're at the stage of economic contraction. What we don't know is how long that will last, what the true impact will be, how many industries and businesses will be significantly affected. But we we have seen issues already across aviation, manufacturing, tourism, retail, the wider transport sector and hospitality. And I think that will continue. So if I looked forward to Q3 and Q4 of the financial year, I think there's been quite a lot of flexibility from lenders and counterparties so far, given the uncertainty as to whether there'll be quick recovery, which now looks more unlikely as of early August, and just what the lasting impact of economic contraction will be. So I think that when you couple that with parties wanting to negotiate and avoid lengthy disputes, for now at least, there's an increased willingness to collaborate and cooperate. There's also a lot of uncertainty around cash flow, so that will inevitably impact decisions around legal spend. So. I think decisions around initiating disputes will be longer. That said, I think that period of time of collaboration and negotiation will run out at the end of Q2 because then we'll be six months into lockdown. So I think we'll see a significant rise in dispute instructions from Q3, lasting for the foreseeable future, certainly until the end of 2020 and beyond. Jessica, what's the view from Asia? The disputes that we have been engaged on most recently actually largely predate COVID. So they either were kind of were in abeyance for a period of time while a lot of different parts of the region were offline or that they relate to disputes that are from a couple of years ago and have just worked their way through to arbitration now or, or through to litigation now, which is also, I think, slightly counterfactual to the narrative in press and media at the moment, which is anticipating kind of a high degree of distress right now, which we haven't seen yet. Increasingly, we're being hired by Chinese clients who have invested overseas and have run into difficulties and they're looking for legal assistance and we've been working for external counsel on those kinds of disputes. And I think we'll see more of that as there's so much Chinese investment overseas. What we, again, had anticipated seeing was kind of a large number of contractual issues or possible fallout from the massive amount of investment that's gone into the Belt and Road Initiative from China into countries all across Asia and into Central Asia. And that hasn't happened, actually, which has been interesting. Secondly, I think historically in Asia, there's been a higher tendency to settle on disputes than elsewhere. And what we are seeing with the role of litigation funders who have an increasingly prominent role, particularly in Hong Kong and Singapore, their role with also the uptake of insolvency and that they're able to fund arbitration is that some disputes that may have settled earlier are running for longer through to an award stage, which wasn't necessarily the case before. 
And then lastly, I think the degree of sophistication of legal strategy has really shifted and increasingly we're also seeing clients employ jurisdictional arbitrage where we're hired to conduct research in different jurisdictions and that information feeds into legal strategy where they will use that information to establish where debtors have their main center of gravity and then they'll take simultaneous action in multiple jurisdictions in court, kind of leveraging the different strengths and weaknesses of different jurisdictions. So, for instance, they might look to gain access to data via discovery in courts in the US where that process is more favorable and then they'll use that information to seek to secure assets in more obscure or secretive jurisdictions such as offshore jurisdictions. I think we've definitely seen an uptick in that as well. What is your one piece of key advice that you would give to counsel undertaking asset identification? My bit of advice to counsel would be to undertake an asset search using investigators who are in country or have extensive experience of operating on the ground because that cultural nuance and the experience of seeing how previous defaults or frauds or issues of non-payment have played out really help you when you're being creative about undertaking an asset search. And then coupled with that, having the ability to do multi-jurisdictional research at once in an integrated manner is really going to provide you with the best possible result. Expectation management is key. A good level of communication, which means that from our side as business intelligence investigator at the coal face of gathering information that we need to be really clear about the admissibility of the information that we're getting and that there's no shortcut to that often. So sometimes to get to the same point, you have to go the long way around and we have to manage clients' expectations about that. And that also it's just a very iterative process. And it would be great if there was a kind of shortcut to the bank account in a certain jurisdiction, but that's often not the case. And it will take rafts of research and investigation to get the result that they need. If you enjoyed what you heard today on Legal and Compliance Insights, make sure to subscribe. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of current issues on global business. All our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search for Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com. Thank you, and goodbye for now.